Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Chapter 11 We thought we were thinking, but actually we moved on wild, mindless impulse. We had the women on their feet, blinking in the light, questioning us bewilderedly. But at the looks on our faces when we didn't reply, the panic leaped from us to them like a contagion. Then all of us rushed through the house, gathering up clothes. Jack had a butcher knife thrust into his belt. I took every cent of money I had in the place, and we found Theodora down in the kitchen, half-dressed, packing canned goods into a small carton. I don't know what she thought she was doing. We actually bumped into one another in hallways, on the stairs, and rushing out of rooms. It must have looked like an old-time silent film comedy, only there was no laughter in it. We were running, out of that house, and out of that town, as fast as we could move. We were suddenly overwhelmed not knowing what else to do, how to fight back, or against what. Something impossibly terrible yet utterly real was menacing us in a way beyond our comprehension or abilities, and we fled. Theodora, still in bedroom slippers, we were slamming into Jack's car on the dark, silent street just out of the pool of swaying light from the overhead street lamp, our foolish armfuls of clothes tossed into the back seat. The starter ground, the motor caught, then Jack squealed rubber, pulling away from the curb, and we weren't thinking at all, just running, 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 till we were on US-101 and Mill Valley 11 miles behind us. Then, moving along over the almost deserted road, I began to feel a return of some sort of ordered thinking, or at least the illusion of it. Successful rapid flight, the piling up of distance, becomes in itself a calming thing, an antidote for fear. And I turned to Becky in the back seat beside me, smiling, my mouth opening to speak. Then I saw she was asleep, her face pale and drained of the light from a passing car. And the fright roared up in me again, worse than ever, bursting in my brain in a silent explosion of pure panic. I was shaking Jack's shoulder, shouting at him to stop. Then we were jouncing off the dark road onto a narrow dirt and gravel shoulder. Jack's parking brake rasped, then leaning far across Theodora, he brought his fist down on the glove compartment button. It flew open, he fumbled inside it, then scrambled out of the car, his face wild and questioning. I was leaning past him, yanking his keys from the dashboard. Then we were running toward the back of the car, but Jack ran on, down the narrow dirt shoulder, and I had my mouth open to yell at him when he dropped to one knee and I knew what he was doing. Jack once had the back of his car smashed in while he was changing a tire. And now it's second nature with him when he stops off the road to set out flares. One sputtered in his hand now, then rose into smoky pink-red flame. And as Jack raised it high to jam the spike into the ground, I shoved a key into the lock of his trunk, twisting it frantically. Then Jack had the keys, yanking them from the lock. He found the right one, inserted it, turned, then heaved up the lid of the trunk... And there they lay, in the advancing, retreating waves of flickering red light, two enormous pods already burst open in one or two places, and I reached in with both hands and tumbled them out into the dirt. 
They were weightless as children's balloons, harsh and dry on my palms and fingers. At the feel of them on my skin, I lost my mind completely, and then I was trampling them, smashing and crushing them under my plunging feet and legs, not even knowing that I was uttering a sort of hoarse, meaningless cry of fright and animal disgust. The wind had the flares twisting the flames till they sputtered and choked, and on the high cutaway embankment beside me, I saw a giant shadow, mine, squirming and dancing in a wild, flickering, insane caper. The whole nightmare scene bathed in a mad light, the color of froth from a wound, and I think I came close to losing my mind. Jack was yanking hard on my arm, dragging me away, and we turned to the trunk again. Jack pulled out the spare can of gasoline he carried. He got the top off, and there at the side of the road, in the pink washes of smoky light, he drenched those two great weightless masses, and they dissolved into a mushy pulp of nothingness. Then I had a flare, wrenching it from the ground, and running back I hurled it into the soupy mass, lying there in the dirt and gravel. Pulling away fast, the car bumping onto the road again, I looked back. The flames suddenly shot high, five or six feet, orange flames in a pink wash of light, the thick, greasy smoke twisting and rolling away in the heat waves. Watching as Jack shifted fast into second and then into high, I saw the flames drop quickly and subside into a score of inch-high, blue and red flickering tongues, the smoke blood pink once again. Suddenly they went out or were lost to view over a small rise of ground. And now I didn't even try to talk or think. None of us did. We were drained of thought and emotion. I just sat holding Becky's hand, steering the car with my eyes around the curves up and down the hills, piling up distance. Becky silent and bolt upright beside me. An hour or so later... The green neon vacancy sign, looking cold and unfriendly. We stopped at a motel, the rancho something or other. Jack got out, and as I opened my door, Becky leaned toward me and whispered, Don't get me a room alone, Miles. I'm too scared. I just couldn't stay by myself tonight. I couldn't. I'm so scared. I nodded and got out. We awakened the proprietor a perpetually tired and irritated middle-aged woman in slippers and a robe who had long since given up wondering about the people who woke her at any and all hours of the night. With no more than half a dozen words, we got two double rooms, paid for them, were given keys, and we signed the registration cards. Without consciously thinking about it, I signed a false name. Then I noticed Jack doing the same thing and realized why. It was idiotic, of course, but it seemed terribly important just then to make ourselves anonymous and crawl into a hole and out of sight, no one in the world knowing where we were. In the tumbled mound of clothes in the back seat, Jack found pajamas, but I didn't and borrowed a pair of his. Both of the women found nightgowns. I unlocked the door of our room, ushered Becky in first, then stepped in after her. I'd asked for twin beds, but there stood a double bed. And when I made a sound of annoyance and turned back to the door, Becky stopped me, a hand on my arm. Leave it this way, Miles, please. I'm just too scared. I haven't been this frightened since I was a little girl. Oh, Miles, don't leave me. We were asleep in less than five minutes. 
I lay not touching Becky except for an arm around her waist, and she had both hands clasped over mine, holding it tight like a child. And we slept, simply slept for the rest of the night. We were tired. I'd had no sleep at all since three o'clock of the night before. Anyway, there's a time and a place for everything, and while this may have been the place, it wasn't the time. We slept. If I dreamed, no traces remained in my memory. I simply left the world and life for exhausted oblivion, and it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I might have slept on till noon, I think, but around eight-thirty, quarter to nine, I turned over, bumped into someone, and heard her sigh. My eyes flashed open as Becky, still asleep, turned to snuggle close to me. It was too much, wonderfully warm, flushed with sleep, the soft column of her breath pressing my cheek. She lay full length beside me, and I could no more have stopped gathering her into my arms than stop breathing. For a long, long moment, the warm length of her pressed against me. That was enough. But then it wasn't, and what happened with us now was the best thing that had happened to me for a very long time. When I'd showered and dressed, feeling good, grinning at Becky, I went outside, and Jack was there, wandering the little paved parking area. We spoke, stood looking around at the morning, and then when our eyes met again, I said, Well, what now? Where to? Jack looked at me, his face tired and drawn, then one shoulder lifted in a little shrug. Home, he said. I stared at him. Yeah, that's right, he said irritably. Where did you think we were going? I was frowning, suddenly angry, my mouth opening to argue with him, but I didn't. After a moment, I closed my mouth, and Jack smiled a little, nodding as though I'd said something he agreed with. Sure, he said. You know it as well as I do. Did you think you were going to change your name, grow a beard, and go off somewhere to start life anew? I smiled a little, too. When Jack put it into words, anything but going back home to Mill Valley was unreal, without force or conviction. It was morning now, the air bright with sun. I'd had half a night's sleep, and my brain was washed clear of horror again. The fear was there still, active and real, but I was able to think without panic. We'd had our running away, and it had done us good, <laughs> me anyway, but we belonged at home not in some vague, unknown, mythical new place. And now it was time to go back to the place we belonged, which belonged to us, and fight against whatever was happening as best we could and however we could. Jack knew it, and now so did I. A moment later, Theodora came out and walked toward us. As she got nearer, her eyes on Jack's face, she began to frown. Then, stopping before him, she simply looked at him questioningly. Jack nodded, yeah? he said uneasily. Honey, Miles and I feel... He stopped as Theodora slowly nodded her head. Never mind, she said tiredly. If you're going back, you're going back. It doesn't matter why. And where you go, I go. She shrugged 
and turning to me managed a wan smile. Morning, Miles. When Becky came out, her nightgown and my pajamas rolled into a bundle under her arm. Her face was anxious and intent, full of what she had to say. Miles, she stopped in front of us. I've got to go back. It's all real. It really is happening, and my father... She stopped talking as I nodded. We're all going back, I said gently, taking her elbow, leading her toward the car, Jack and Theodora walking along with us. Only first, for God's sakes, let's get us some breakfast. At two minutes after eleven that morning, Jack shifted into second and began to curse as we turned off the freeway onto the road into Mill Valley and the last few miles to home. We were charged with a terrible urgency to get there, now to move, to act. But the road had deteriorated. No repairs made for some time now, and it was scattered with sharp-edged little chuck holes and occasional bigger ones that could break an axle if you hit them too fast. Mill Valley is isolated, only a few ways into it, and this was happening to all the roads. They go fast if you don't keep them up, and we cursed the city council, the county, and whoever else we thought might be responsible. Chapter 12 I don't know how many people still live in the town they were born in these days, but I did, and it's inexpressibly sad to see that place die. Maybe even worse than the death of a friend, because you have other friends to turn to. We did a great deal, and a lot of things happened in the hour and fifty-five minutes that followed. And in every minute of it, my sense of loss deepened and my sense of shock grew at what we saw. And I knew that something dear to me was lost. Moving along an outlying street now, I had my first actual feeling of the terrible change at Mill Valley. And I remembered something an uncle had once told me about the war, the fighting in Italy. They would come sometimes into a town supposedly free of Germans, the population supposedly friendly. But they'd enter with rifles at the ready, just the same, glancing around, up and back with every cautious step. And they saw every window, door, alleyway, and face, he told me, as something to fear. Now, home again in the town I was born in. I'd delivered papers on this very street. I knew how he'd felt entering those Italian villages. I was afraid of what I might see and find here. Jack said, I'd like to run up to our place for a few minutes, Miles. Teddy and I need some clothes. I didn't want to go with them. I was sick with the thoughts and feelings moving through me, and I knew I had to see this town, to look at it up close, hoping to be able to tell myself that it was still the way it always had been. I had no Saturday office hours to worry about, another doctor on call this weekend. So I said, let us out then, Jack, and we'll walk. I feel like it, if Becky doesn't mind, and we'll meet you at my place. So Jack led us out on Sycamore Avenue, maybe a ten-minute walk from my house. Sycamore is a quiet residential street like most of the others in Mill Valley. And as the sound of Jack's car died, Becky and I walked along toward Throckmorton, and there wasn't a soul in sight, and hardly a sound, but our shoes on the walk. It should have seemed peaceful. Not talking much, 
We walked for half a dozen blocks, and I looked around me. I'd driven the streets of Mill Valley every day. I'd been in this very block not a week before, and everything I was seeing now had been here to see then, except that you don't really see the familiar until it's thrust upon you. You don't actually notice until there's a reason to do so. But now there was a reason. And I looked around me, really seeing the street and the houses along it, trying to soak up every impression they could give me. I couldn't possibly describe any specific way in which anything I saw seemed different. Yet things did, in a way words can't explain. But if I were an artist, painting the way Sycamore Street seemed to me, walking along now with Becky, I think I'd distort the windows of the houses we passed. I'd show them with half-drawn shades, the bottom edge of each shade curving downward so that the windows looked like heavy-lidded, watchful eyes, quietly and terribly aware of us as we passed through that silent street. I'd show the porch rails and stair rails hugging the old houses like protective arms, sullenly guarding them against our curiosity. I'd paint the houses themselves as huddled and crouching, alien and withdrawn, resentful, evil, and full of icy malice against the two figures walking along the street between them. And somehow I'd depict the very trees and lawns, the street and sky above us, as dark, though it was actually clear and sunny, and give the picture a brooding, silent, fearful quality. And I think I'd make every color just a shade off-key. I don't know if that would convey what I felt, but something was wrong and I knew it, and then I knew that Becky did too. Miles, she said in a cautious, lowered tone, am I imagining it, or does this street look dead? I shook my head. You're not wrong. In seven blocks, we haven't passed a single house with as much as the trim being repainted, not a roof porch or even a cracked window being repaired, not a tree shrub or a blade of grass being planted or even trimmed. Nothing's happening, Becky. Nobody's doing anything. And they haven't for days, maybe weeks. It was true. We walked three more blocks to Blythedale and then on to Throckmorton and saw not a sign of change. We might have been on a finished stage set, completed to the last nail and final stroke of a brush. Yet you cannot walk for blocks on an ordinary street inhabited by human beings without seeing evidences of, say, a garage being built, a new cement sidewalk being laid, a yard being spaded, a new window being installed, at least some little signs of the endless urge to change and improve that marks the human race. We turned on to Throckmorton, and while there were people on the sidewalks and cars beside the parking meters, somehow the street seemed surprisingly empty and inactive. Except for the occasional slam of a car door or the sound of a voice, the street was very nearly silent for as much as half a block at a time, the way it is late at night, with the town asleep. A great deal of what we saw then I'd seen before, driving along Throckmorton on my way to house calls, but I hadn't really noticed, hadn't really looked at this street I'd been seeing all my life, but I did now. 
and I suddenly remembered the empty store I'd seen near my office, because now in the first few blocks, our footsteps plainly audible on the walk, we passed three more empty stores. The windows had been whitened, and through them dimly we could see the interiors littered and uncleaned, and they looked as though they'd been empty for some time now. We passed under the Milltown Tavern sign, and the letters R.N. in Tavern were missing. The windows were fly-specked, the cardboard liquor signs badly sun-faded. There was only one customer sitting motionless at the bar. The doors were open, and we glanced in as we passed, and the place was silent. The in-place was closed up for good, apparently, because the counter-stools were unbolted and lying on their sides on the floor. A shoe store still had some Fourth of July advertising in the window. Some children's shoes grouped around it, and over the shine of their leather lay a fine layer of dust. The Sequoia Theater, when we came to it, had a placard in an outside display case, and it read, Open Saturday and Sunday evenings only. I noticed again as Becky and I walked along the street, how much paper and litter there was. The city trash baskets stood full, and torn sheets of newspaper and tiny drifts of dust lay in the corners of store entrances and at the bases of street lamps and mailboxes. In the little town square, the weeds were high and untended for days. Becky murmured, The popcorn wagon's gone. And I saw that it was. For years, a red-wheeled, glass-and-gilt popcorn wagon had stood beside the bus station daytimes, and now it and Eddie, the middle-aged man who owned it and ran it, were gone. Dave's diner lay just ahead. The last time I'd eaten there, I'd wondered vaguely why there'd been so few customers. And now I wondered again, as we stopped to glance in through the plate glass, for only two people were having lunch at a time where it should have been crowded. Fastened to the window, as always, was the day's menu, photocopied daily, and I looked at it. There was a choice of three entrees, and for years there'd always been six or eight. Miles, when did all this happen? Becky gestured to indicate the length of the semi-deserted street behind and ahead of us. A little at a time, I said, and shrugged. We're just realizing it now. The town's dying. We turned away from the restaurant window, and Ed Burley's plumbing truck passed, and he waved, and we waved back. Then, in that queer silence that occasionally came over the street, we could hear our footsteps on the sidewalk again. At the corner, at Lovelock's pharmacy, Becky said, trying to sound casual, Let's have a Coke or some coffee or something. And I nodded, and we turned in. I knew she wanted not a Coke or coffee, but to get off this street for a minute or so. And so did I. There was a man sitting at the counter which surprised me. Then I was surprised that I should have been surprised. But somehow, after our walk down Throckmorton, I'd almost have expected any place we might have gone into to be empty. The man turned to glance at us, and I recognized him. He was a salesman from some San Francisco wholesale house. I'd once treated him for a twisted ankle. We took the two stools next to him, and I said, How's business? Old Mr. Lovelock looked at me inquiringly from down the counter, and I held up two fingers and said, Two Cokes. Lousy, 
the man next to me answered. There was still the remainder of a smile on his face from our greeting, but it seemed to me that a hint of hostility had come into his face. At least in Mill Valley, he added. Then he sat looking at me for several moments, as though debating whether to say any more. Down the counter, the spigot coughed as our Coke glasses were filled. Then the man beside me leaned toward me, lowered his voice, and said, What the hell's going on around here? Mr. Lovelock came carrying our Cokes. Then he set them down carefully and slowly, and stood there for a moment or so, blinking benignly. I waited till he turned away and shuffled off to the back of the store again before I answered. How do you mean, I said casually, and took a sip of my Coke. It tasted bad. It was too warm, and it hadn't been stirred, and though I looked around, there wasn't a spoon or straw in sight, and I set the glass down on the counter. You can't get an order anymore, the salesman shrugged. Not to amount to anything, anyway. Just the staples, the bare essentials, but none of the extras. He remembered then that you mustn't knock the hometown to a resident, and he smiled jovially. You people on a buyer's strike or something? He gave up the effort and quit smiling. <laughs> people just aren't buying, he muttered sullenly. Well, I guess things are a little tight around here at the moment, that's all. Maybe. Picked up his cup and swished the coffee around in the bottom of it, staring morosely down at the cup. All I know is it's hardly worth coming into town lately. Hell of a place to get to now, for one thing. Takes time just to get in and out of Mill Valley. And for all the good I do, I might as well pick up what orders they got by phone. And it isn't just me, he added defensively. Everyone else says so. The other salesmen, most of them have quit coming around. You can't make gas money in this town anymore. You can hardly even buy a Coke most places, or he nodded at his coffee cup. A cup of coffee. Twice lately this place has been out of coffee altogether for no reason at all. And today, when they have it, it's lousy. Terrible. He finished the coffee in a gulp, making a face, and as he slid off the counter stool, the hostility was plain in his face, and he didn't bother to smile. What's the matter? he said angrily. This town dying on its feet? He pulled a coin from his pocket, leaned forward to lay it on the counter, and his face, close to mine, spoke quietly into my ear with suppressed bitterness. They act as though they don't even want salesmen around. For a moment he stared at me, then he smiled professionally. See you, Doc, he said, nodded politely at Becky, then turned and walked to the door. Miles, Becky said, and I turned to look at her. Listen, Miles, she spoke in a whisper. But her voice was tense. Do you think it's possible for a town to cut itself off from the world? Gradually discourage people from coming around till it's not noticed anymore? Actually almost forgotten? I thought about it, then shook my head. No. But the roads, Miles, they're getting almost impassable. That doesn't make sense. And that salesman, and the way the town looks, it's impossible, Becky. It'd take a whole town to do that, every soul in it. It'd have to be absolutely unanimous in decision and action, and that would include us. Well, she said, they tried to include us. For a moment I stared at her. She was right. Come on, I said, then laid a dollar on the counter and stood up. Let's get out of here. We've seen what we came to see. At the next corner, we passed my office, and I looked up at my name in gold leaf on the second-story window. 
It seemed a long time since I'd been there. We walked on, out of the shopping area, and Becky said, I've got to stop in at my house and see my father. And Miles, I hate to. I can hardly bear seeing him the way he is now. There was nothing I could say to that, and I simply nodded. A block or so ahead of us now lay the public library, and I said, We'll have to take a minute to stop in at the library. Miss Wagen was at the desk as we walked in, and I smiled with real pleasure as always. She'd been librarian since I was a grade school kid coming in for Tom Swift and Zane Grey books, and she was the opposite of the conventional notion of what a librarian usually is. She was a gray-haired, intelligent-eyed, brisk little woman, and you could talk in the main reading room of her library if you weren't too loud about it, and there were comfortable cushioned chairs beside low magazine-strewn tables. It was a nice place to spend a pleasant hour or afternoon, a place where people met friends to talk quietly. She was wonderful with children, had an enormous natural and interested patience. And as a kid, I always remembered you felt welcome there and not an intruder. Miss Wagen was one of my favorite people, and now as we stopped at her desk and greeted her, she smiled a bright, really pleased smile that made you glad you were here. Hello, Miles, she said. Glad to see you're reading again. And I grinned. It's nice to see you, Becky, she said. Say hello to your dad for me. We replied. Then I said, could we look at the Mill Valley record files, Miss Wagen, for last summer, the first part of July? Certainly, she said, and when I offered to go downstairs for the file myself, she said, no, sit down and relax, I'll bring it up. We took a couple of chairs at the magazine table. Becky picked up a magazine, and I sat glancing around. Only one other person, an elderly man at another table, was here, which was unusual. It took a while before Miss Wagen came up from the file room. It was 12.20 before she reappeared, smiling with the big cloth-covered newspaper-sized book stamped Mill Valley Record, July, August, September, 1976. She laid it on the table between us, and we thanked her. The dateline on Jack's clipping had been July 9, and I opened the big book and found the record for the day before. Both of us scanned the front page, glancing carefully at each story. There was nothing there about giant seed pods or Professor L. Bernard Budlong, and I turned the page. In the upper left corner of page three was a rectangular hole, two columns wide by five or six inches deep. A news story had been neatly sliced out with a razor blade, and Becky and I glanced at each other, then examined the rest of the page and page two. We found nothing of what we were looking for, nor did we find it in the remaining three pages of the July 8 record. We turned to the July 7 issue and began with page 1. There was nothing in the paper about Budlong or the pods. On the bottom half of the July 6 record's first page was a hole seven or eight inches long and three columns wide. On the bottom half of the July 5 issue was another hole just about as long but only two columns wide. It wasn't a guess but a sudden stab of direct, intuitive knowledge. I knew, that's all, and I swung in my chair to stare across the room at Miss Wagand. She stood motionless behind the big desk, her eyes fastened on us, and in the instant I swung to look at her. Her face was wooden, devoid of any expression, and the eyes were bright, achingly intent, and as inhumanly cold as the eyes of a shark. 
The moment was less than a moment, the flick of an eyelash, because instantly she smiled, pleasantly, inquiringly, her brows lifting in polite question. Anything I can do, she said with the calm, interested eagerness typical of her in all the years I had known her. Yes, I said. Would you come here, please, Miss Wagan? Smiling brightly, she walked around her desk and crossed the room toward us. There was no one else in the library now. It was twenty-six minutes past twelve by the big clock over her desk, and the only other patron had left a few minutes before. Miss Wagan stopped beside me. I glanced up at her, and she stood looking down at me, her expression pleasantly inquiring. I nodded at the hole on the front page of the newspaper before me. Just before you brought us this file, I said quietly. You cut out all references to the seed pods found here last summer, didn't you? She frowned, bewildered by this accusation, and leaned forward to stare down in surprise at the mutilated paper on the low round table. Then I stood up to face her, my face a few inches from hers. I said, don't bother, Miss Wagan, or whatever you are. Don't bother to put on an act for me. I leaned closer, staring her directly in the eyes, and my voice dropped. I know you, I said softly. I know what you are. For a moment she still stood, glancing helplessly from me to Becky in utter bewilderment. Then suddenly she dropped the pretense. Gray-haired Miss Wagan, who twenty years ago had loaned me the first copy of Huckleberry Finn I ever read, looked at me, her face going wooden and blank, with an utterly cold and pitiless alienness. There was nothing there now in that gaze, nothing in common with me. A fish in the sea had more kinship with me than this staring thing before me. Then she spoke. I know you, I'd said, and now she replied, and her voice was infinitely remote and uncaring. Do you, she said, then turned on her heel and walked away. I gestured at Becky and we walked on out of the library. Outside on the sidewalk we took half a dozen steps in silence. Then Becky shook her head. Even her, she murmured, even Miss Wagand, and the tears shone in her eyes. Oh, Miles, she said softly and glanced around first over one shoulder then the other at the houses, quiet lawns, and the street beside us. How many more? I didn't know the answer to that, and I just shook my head, and we walked on toward Becky's house. Chapter 13 there was a car parked in front of Becky's, and as we approached, we recognized it, a 1973 Buick Century sedan. The blue paint faded from the sun. Wilma, Aunt Alida, and Uncle Ira, Becky murmured and looked at me. Then she said, Miles, we were almost at the house, and she stopped on the sidewalk. I can't go in there. I stood for a moment thinking. We won't go in, I said then, but we've got to see them, Becky. She started shaking her head, and I said, we've got to know what's going on, Becky. We have to find out, or we might as well not have come back to town. I took her arm, and we turned in at the brick walk leading up to the house, but I stepped off it immediately, pulling Becky off too, and we walked in silence on the lawn beside it. Where would they be, I said. When she didn't answer, I shook her once, almost roughly, my hand still on her arm. Becky, where would they be? The living room? She nodded dumbly and we walked silently around to the side of the house. 
and the wide old porch that passed under the living room windows. The windows were open. We heard the murmur of voices behind the white living room curtains, and I stopped, lifted a foot, pulled off my shoe, then took off the other. I glanced down at Becky, and she swallowed. Then, holding to my arm, she pulled off her shoes, and just beyond the living room windows, towards the back of the house, we crept silently up the porch stairs. Then, beside the open window, we sat down on the porch very carefully and slowly. We were out of sight, completely sheltered from the street by the big old trees and high shrubbery of the lawn. "'Like some more coffee?' we heard a voice, Becky's father, saying. "'No,' said Wilma, and we heard the clink of a cup and saucer set down on a wood surface. "'I've got to be back at the shop by one, but you and Uncle Ira can stay, Aunt Alida.' "'No,' Wilma's aunt replied. "'We'll get along, too. Sorry to have missed seeing Becky.' I moved my head to bring an eye just above the window sill at the side of the open window. There they sat, Becky's gray-haired father smoking a cigar, round-faced, red-cheeked Wilma, tall old Uncle Ira, and the tiny, sweet-faced old lady who was Wilma's aunt, all of them looking and sounding precisely the way they always had. I turned to glance at Becky, wondering if we hadn't made some terrible mistake and if these people weren't just what they seemed. I'm sorry, too, Becky's father replied. I thought surely she'd be home. She's back in town, you know. Yes, we know, said Uncle Ira, and so is Miles. And I wondered how they could possibly know we were back or that we'd even been gone. Then something happened without warning, that made the hair on the back of my neck prickle and stand erect. This is very hard to explain, but when I was in college, a middle-aged black man had a shoeshine stand on the sidewalk before one of the older hotels, and he was a town character. Everyone patronized Billy, because he was everyone's notion of what a character should be. He had a title for each regular customer. Morning, Professor, he'd say soberly to a thin, glasses-wearing businessman who sat down for a shoeshine each day. A greeting to you, Captain, he'd say to someone else. Howdy-do, Colonel. Nice evening, Doctor. General, I'm pleased to see you. The flattery was obvious, and the people always smiled to show they weren't taken in by it, but they liked it just the same. Billy professed a genuine love for shoes. He'd nod with approving criticalness when you showed up with a new pair. Good leather, he'd murmur, nodding with a considered conviction. Pleasure to work on shoes like these. And you'd feel a glow of foolish pride in your own good taste. If your shoes were old, he might hold one cupped in his hand when he'd finished with it, twisting it a little from side to side to catch the light. Nothing takes a shine like good aged leather. Their lieutenant, nothing. And if you ever showed up with a cheap pair of shoes, his silence gave conviction to his compliments of the past. With Billy, the shoeshine man, you had the feeling of being with that rarest of persons, a happy man. He obviously took contentment in one of the simpler occupations of the world, and the money involved seemed actually unimportant. When you put them into his hands, he didn't even look at the coins you had given him. His acceptance was absent-minded, his attention devoted to your shoes and to you, and you walked away feeling a little glow, as though you'd just done a good deed. One night I was up till dawn. 
in a student escapade of no importance. Now, and alone in my car, I found myself in the run-down section of town, a good two miles from the campus. I was suddenly aching for sleep, too tired to drive on home. I pulled to the curb, and with the sun just beginning to show, I curled up in the back seat under the old blanket I kept there. Maybe half a minute later, nearly asleep, I was pulled awake again by steps on the sidewalk beside me, and a man's voice said quietly, "'Morning, Bill.' My head below the level of the car window, I couldn't see who was talking, but I heard another voice, tired and irritable, reply, Hi, Charlie. And the second voice was familiar, though I couldn't quite place it. Then it continued in a suddenly strange and altered tone. Morning, Professor, said with a queer, twisted heartiness. Morning, it repeated. Man, just look at those shoes. You had them shoes? Let me see now. Fifty-six years come Tuesday, and they still takes a lovely shine. The voice was Billy's, the words and tone those the town knew with affection, but parodied, and a shade off-key. Take it easy, Bill, the first voice murmured uneasily, but Billy ignored it. I just love those shoes, Colonel, he continued in a suddenly vicious, jeering imitation of his familiar patter. That's all I want, Colonel, just to handle people's shoes. Let me kiss them. Let me kiss your feet. The pent-up bitterness of years tainted every word and syllable he spoke. And then, for a full minute, perhaps, standing there on a sidewalk of the slum he lived in, Billy went on with this quietly hysterical parody of himself, his friend occasionally murmuring, Relax, Bill, come on now, take it easy. But Billy continued, and never before in my life had I heard such ugly, bitter, and vicious contempt in a voice, contempt for the people taken in by his daily antics, but even more for himself, the man who supplied the servility they bought from him. Then abruptly he stopped, laughed once harshly, and said, See you, Charlie? And his friend laughed too uncomfortably and said, Don't let him get you down, Bill. Then the footsteps resumed in opposite directions. I never again had my shoes shined at Billy's stand, and I was careful never even to pass it except once, when I forgot. Then I heard Billy's voice say, Now there's a shine, Commander, and I glanced up to see Billy's face alight with simple pleasure in the gleaming shoe he held in his hand. I looked at the heavy-set man in the chair and saw his face smiling patronizingly at Billy's bowed head, and I turned away and walked on, ashamed for us all. She's back in town, Becky's father had said. And Uncle Ira answered, yes, we know, and so is Miles. Now he said, how's business, Miles? Kill many today? And for the first time in years, I heard in another voice the shocking mockery I had heard in Billy's. And the short hairs of my neck actually stirred and prickled. Bag the limit. Uncle Ira went on, repeating my reply to him of a week before, ages before, out on the front lawn of his home, and his voice parodied mine with the pitiless sarcasm of one child taunting another. Oh, Miles, Wilma said then in a simpering voice, and the venom in it made me shiver. I've been meaning to stop in and see you about what happened. Then she laughed falsely in a hideous burlesque of embarrassment.
Tiny little Aunt Alida tittered and picked up Wilma's conversation with me. I've been so embarrassed, Miles. I don't quite know what happened. The nastiness in her tone was actually sickening. Or how to tell you, but I've come to my senses again. Now the little old lady's voice deepened. Don't bother to explain, Wilma. She was imitating my tone and manner to perfection. I don't want you to worry or feel badly. Just forget the whole thing. Then they all laughed soundlessly. Their lips pulled back from their teeth, their eyes amused, mocking and utterly cold. And I knew these weren't Wilma, Uncle Ira, Aunt Alida, or Becky's father, knew they were not human beings at all, and I was very nearly sick. Becky sat flat on the floor of the porch, her back supported by the wall of the house, and her face was completely drained of blood, and her mouth hung open, and I knew she was only semi-conscious. I pinched up a fold of skin on her forearm between my thumb and forefinger, then twisted it hard, at the same time clapping my other hand tight over her mouth so she couldn't cry out from the sudden pain. Watching her face closely, I saw a little rush of color come into her cheeks, and with my knuckles I wrapped her sharply on the forehead where the skin is thin, hurting her so the anger flashed in her eyes. Then I crossed my lips with a forefinger, put a hand on her elbow, and helped her to stand. We made no sound as we moved down off the porch in stocking feet, carrying our shoes. At the sidewalk we put them on. I didn't stop to tie my laces, and walked ahead toward my house two blocks beyond. All Becky said was, Oh, Miles, in a sick, subdued sort of moan. And I just nodded, and we kept on walking fast, putting distance between us and that corrupted old house. We were halfway up my front steps before I noticed the figure on my porch swing. Then his movement as he started to rise caught my eye, and I saw the brass buttons and blue uniformed coat. Hi, Miles, Becky, he said quietly. It was Nick Grivet, the local police chief, and he was smiling pleasantly. Hello, Nick. I made my voice casual and inquiring. Anything wrong? No, he shook his head. Not a thing. He stood there across the porch, a middle-aged man, smiling benignly. Would you like to come down to the station, though, or my office, that is, if you don't mind, Miles? Sure, I nodded. What's up, Nick? He moved a shoulder slightly. Nothing much. A few questions is all. But I wouldn't let it go. About what? Oh, again he shrugged. For one thing, uh, that body you and Belichick say you found. Just want to get the record straight on that. Okay, I turned to Becky. Want to come? I said as though it weren't important. Won't take long, will it, Nick? No. His voice was casual. Ten, fifteen minutes, maybe. All right, take my car. But rather use mine, Miles, if you don't mind. I'll run you back when we're through. He nodded toward the side of the house. I parked in your garage next to your car, Miles. You left the doors open. I nodded as though that were natural, but of course it wasn't. The natural, easy place to park was in the street, unless you were afraid the gold star on your car might scare away the people you were waiting for. I stepped politely back to the porch rail, motioning Nick to precede me, and yawned a little bored and uninterested. Nick walked forward toward the stairs, a squat, heavily built, plump little man, his jaw no higher than my shoulder. 
In the instant he stepped before me, I brought up my fist as hard as I could and hit him a terrible blow on the jaw. But it isn't as easy to knock out a man with a blow as you might think, unless you're trained and expert at it, and I wasn't. Nick staggered sideways and went down to his knees. Then I had an arm around his neck, standing at his back, pulling his chin up in the crook of my elbow over my hip, and he had to stumble to his feet to ease the pressure on his throat. I saw his face, his head bent far back as I curved my hip into his back, and while you'd expect a man to be angry, his eyes were cold, hard, and as empty of emotion as a barracuda's. I pulled out his gun, rammed it into his back, and let him go, and he knew I'd use it, and stood still. Then I handcuffed his hands behind his back with his own cuffs and took him into the house. Becky touched my arm. Miles, this is too much for us. They're after us, all of them, and they'll get us. Miles, we've got to leave. We've got to run. I took her by both arms, just above the elbows, staring down into her face, and I nodded. Yeah, I want you out of here, Becky, out of this town and a thousand miles away, and I want you to take my car right now. I'll run, too, but I'll be running and fighting at the same time, right here. Don't worry about me. I'll be keeping out of their way, but I've got to stay here. I want you out of the way, though, and safe. She stared back at me, bit her lip, then shook her head. I don't want safety without you. What good is that? I started to speak, but she said, Don't argue, Miles. There just isn't time. After a moment, I said, All right. Pushed Grivet into a chair, then picked up the phone and dialed Manny Kaufman's number. It seemed to me now that we needed all the help we could get. The phone rang at the other end of the line. The third ring was interrupted. I heard Manny's voice say, Hell... Then the line went dead. A moment later, the operator, in the telephone company voice they used, said, What number are you calling, please? I told her. The ringing began again and kept on, and this time there was no answer. I knew she'd simply plug me into a ringing circuit, and that Manny's phone wasn't ringing, and neither was anyone else's. I broke the connection, dialed Jack's number, and when he answered, I knew they'd allowed this call to go through to listen in on whatever we said, and I spoke fast. Jack, there's trouble. They tried to get us, and they'll try to get you. Better get out of there fast. We're leaving my house the minute I hang up. All right, Miles, where are you going? I had to stop and think how to say this to Jack. I wanted anyone else listening to think I was leaving town, that we all were, and I needed a way to say that to Jack so he'd know it wasn't true. He's a literary man, and I tried to think of some figure in literature whose name was a symbol for falsehood, but for the moment I couldn't. Then I remembered a biblical name, Ananias the Liar. Well, Jack, I said, there's a woman I know runs a small hotel a couple of hours' drive from here, Mrs. Ananias. You recognize that name? Yeah, Miles, Jack said, and I could tell he was smiling. I know Mrs. Ananias and her reputation for reliability. Well, believe me, Jack, you can rely on this just as much. Becky and I are leaving town right now, and to hell with it. We're going to Mrs. Ananias's place. You understand me, Jack? You know what we're going to do? Perfectly, he said. I understand you perfectly, and I knew that he did, and that he knew we were leaving my house, but we're not leaving town. I think we'll do exactly the same thing, he said. So why don't we all go together? Suggest a place to meet, Miles. Well, I said, remember the man in your newspaper clipping, the teacher? 
I knew Jack would know I meant Budlong, and while I was talking, I was leafing through the phone book, hunting up his address. He's got something we have to have. It's the only next step I can think of. We'll stop by there, and I think maybe we'll arrive on foot. Meet us there with your car. Drive past in exactly one hour. Fine, he said, and hung up, and I could only hope we fooled whoever was listening. Out in the garage, I found Griffith's tiny handcuff key on his keychain. My gun in his side while he knelt on the floor of his car and back, I unlocked his cuffs just long enough to loop them around a metal floor post of the front seat. Then I snapped them on again, chaining him to the floor of his car in the back where he couldn't reach the horn. I wrapped his pistol in his cap and with the butt of the gun, not the end of the butt, but the side, hit him hard on the head. You read a lot about people being hit on the head and knocked out, but you don't read much about blood clots in the brain. In actual fact, though, it's a delicate matter, hitting a man on the head. And while this may not have been Nick Grivet, not anymore, it still looked like him, and I could not smash in his skull. He slumped as I hit him and lay motionless. With my thumb and forefinger, I grabbed a fold of loose skin at the back of his neck and wrenched it hard. He yelped, and I brought the gun down again, carefully, but just a bit harder. Again he lay motionless, and I twisted his skin harder than ever, watching his face for even a flicker of pain. But this time he didn't stir. We backed out of the garage in my car. I got out and closed the garage doors. Then we backed into the street and swung north toward East Blythedale Avenue and the home of L. Bernard Budlong, the man who might have the answer we didn't. Time was running out was working against us, and I knew it. At any moment, a police car or any other car on the street might suddenly force us to the curb, and I had Nick Grivet's gun lying ready on the seat beside me. I wanted to run. I wanted to hide. And the last thing I wanted to do was to sit talking in the home of some college professor. But we had to. I didn't know what else to do next, but I was terribly conscious of the red Mercedes we were riding in. Doc Bennell's car, as everyone in town knew, and I wondered if phones were being lifted in the houses we passed, and if the air at this moment wasn't filled with messages about us. Chapter 14 A great deal of Marin County, California, is hilly, and Mill Valley is built on and among a series of hills, the streets winding through or curving over them. I knew all of them, every foot of every street and hill, and now I headed for the little dead-end street, maybe three blocks from Budlong's address. It ended at a hill too steep for building and overgrown with weeds, underbrush, and scrubby eucalyptus. We reached it and parked beside a clump of small trees, more or less out of sight. Only two houses had a direct view of the car, and it was always possible that no one in them had seen us. We got out, and I left my ignition key in the car, the motor running. We were through with the car, and anyone finding it with the motor on might just possibly waste time waiting for us to come back. There was simply no way I could carry Nick's pistol without it showing, and after a moment I threw it into the weeds. We climbed the hill then along a path I'd followed more than once as a kid, hunting small game with a twenty-two rifle. On the path, no one more than a dozen feet away could see us, and I knew how to follow this path and others, keeping just below the crests of this hill and the next to reach Budlong's backyard. Presently, his house lay below us at the base of the hill we stood on. I'd found a spot a dozen yards off the path where we got a clear view through the trees and brush of his house and the yard in back of it. Now we studied it. 
a two-story house of brown-stained wood-shingled siding at a good-sized yard enclosed at the rear and one side by a high grape-stake fence and by a tall row of shrubbery on the other side. Outdoor living is a big thing in California, and everyone who can has a space for it on his property, private and sheltered from all eyes, and right now I was grateful for that. Nothing moved, no one was in sight in the house and yard below, and so we came quietly down the hill, opened the high gate in the back fence, then crossed the yard and walked around the side of the house, unseen, I felt certain, by anyone. The house had a side entrance. I knocked and as we stood waiting, it occurred to me for the first time that Budlong might very well not be home, that quite likely he wasn't. He was, though. Eight or ten seconds later, a man, in his middle or late thirties, I thought, appeared at the door, looked at us through the glass, then unbolted and opened it. He looked at me questioningly, wondering, I imagine, why we'd use the side door. We got confused, I said, with a polite little laugh. Guess we used the wrong door. Uh, Professor Budlong? Yes? he said, and smiled pleasantly. He wore steel-rimmed glasses, had brownish, slightly wavy hair, and the kind of intelligent, interested, young-looking face the teachers so often seem to have. I'm Miles Bennell, Dr. Bennell, and, oh, yes, he nodded, smiling. I've seen you around town, and I've seen you, too, I said. I knew you were with the college, but didn't know your name. This is Becky Driscoll. How do you do? He opened the door wider and stood to one side. Come in, won't you? He led us in, then took us along a hall to a sort of study. He had an old-fashioned roll-top desk in there, some books in a hanging wall shelf, framed diplomas and photographs on the wall, a rug on the floor, and a battered old couch along one wall. It was a small room with only one window and rather dark, but the desk lamp was on, and the room had a sheltered, pleasant feeling. I imagine he spent a lot of time in it, working. Becky and I sat down on the couch. Budlong took the swivel desk chair, swung partway around to face us. Again he smiled, a kind of friendly boyish smile. What can I do for you? I told him. For reasons too long and complicated to explain, I said we were very interested in anything he could tell us about a newspaper story in which he'd been quoted, though we hadn't seen the story, but only a reference to it in the record. He was grinning by the time I was finished, shaking his head in a sort of rueful amusement at himself. That thing, he said, I guess I'll never hear the end of it. Well, he leaned back, slouching down to rest his neck on the back of his chair. It was my own fault, so I shouldn't complain. What do you want to know, what the story said? Yes, I answered, and anything else you can add. Well, he shrugged a shoulder, the story said some things it shouldn't have. He smiled again at himself. Newspaper reporters, he said ruefully. I guess I've lived a sheltered life. I've never met one before. This one, this young man, Beaky, he's an intelligent boy, phoned me one morning. I was professor of botany and biology, was I not? I said, yes. And he asked if I'd drive out to what's still called the Parnell Barn, the little that's left of it. There was something I ought to see, he said, and he described what it was in just enough detail to arouse my curiosity. Professor Budlong brought his hands together over his chest, the fingertips of one hand touching the tips of the other and it occurred to me the professors must get so they unconsciously act the way people think professors ought to act. 
and I wondered if doctors did too. So I drove out, and on a trash pile next to the old barn, Parnell showed me some large hulls or pods of some sort, apparently vegetable in origin. Beaky asked me what they were, and I told him the truth, that I didn't know. Well, Woodlong smiled. He raised his brows at that as though he was surprised, and since I have my professional pride, it stung me into saying that no botanist alive could identify absolutely anything shown to him. Botanist, young Beaky repeated. Did that mean I thought they were some sort of plant life? And I said, yes, I thought they probably were. Budlon shook his head admiringly. Oh, they're clever, these reporters. They have you making some sort of comment before you quite realize it. Cigarette? He took out a pack from the breast pocket of his coat and offered Becky one, then me. We shook our heads, and he lighted his own. The things he showed me, Professor Budlong exhaled cigarette smoke, simply looked to me like very large seed pods, as they'd have looked to anyone, I'm sure. The old man, Parnell, told me they'd come drifting down from the sky, which I didn't doubt. Where else would they come from? Though Parnell seemed amazed. They didn't seem at all remarkable to me, except possibly for their size. Some sort of seed pod was all I could say. Though I admitted that the substance they were filled with did not resemble what we ordinarily think of as seeds. Beaky tried to interest me in the fact that several objects in the trash pile on which the pods had fallen seemed very much alike, attributing this fact to the pods. He pointed out two empty Del Monte peaches cans, I remember, which looked identical. There was a broken axe handle and another similar one beside it, but I couldn't myself see anything very startling about that. Then he tried another tack. He wanted a story, you see, a sensational one, if possible, and was determined to get it. Budlong drew on his cigarette, smiling at us. Could these things have come, he now wanted to know, from outer space, as he phrased it? Well, Budlong shrugged. I could only answer yes, they could have. I simply didn't know where they'd come from. You see... Professor Budlong sat up in his chair and leaned forward toward us, forearms on his knees. This is where young Beaky trapped me. The theory, the notion, whatever you want to call it, that some of our plant life drifted onto this planet from space is hoary with age. It's a perfectly respectable, reputable theory, and there's nothing sensational or even startling about it. Lord Kelvin, you undoubtedly know this doctor, Lord Kelvin, one of the great scientists of modern times, was one of many adherents to this theory or possibility. Perhaps no life at all began on this planet, he said, but it drifted here through the depths of space. Some spores, he pointed out, have enormous resistance to extremes of cold, and they may have been propelled into the Earth's orbit by light pressure. Any student of the subject is familiar with the theory, and there are arguments for and against it. So, yes, I said to the reporter, these could be spores from outer space. Why not? I simply didn't know. Well, this seemed astonishing news to my reporter friend, and he joined two of my words as a single phrase. Space spores, he said in a pleased tone, and wrote the phrase on the scrap of paper he was carrying, and I began to see headlines in the making. Budlong sat back in his chair again. I should have had better sense, but I'm human. 
It was fun being interviewed, and in my amusement, I amplified the thought for no other reason than to give young Beaky what he seemed to want. The professor quickly raised his hand. Not you understand that I wasn't speaking the strict truth. It is perfectly possible for space spores, if you want to use so dramatic a term, to drift onto the surface of the Earth. I think it's quite probable that they have. In fact, though I personally doubt that all life on this planet originated in this way, advocates of the theory do point out, however, that our planet was once a seething mass of inconceivably hot gas. When and finally, it cooled to the point at which life was possible. Where else could life have come from, they asked, than from outer space? In any case, I got carried away. The boyish-looking professor before us grinned. It's a trait of the academic mind to amplify a theory at great and quite often boring length. And standing there on the Purnell farm, I gave the boy his story. Yes, these might be space spores, I said, and equally well, they might be nothing of the kind. In fact, I assured him, I felt quite certain they could be identified. If one were to take the trouble, as something possibly rare, but perfectly well-known and originating right here on Earth in the most commonplace way, the damage was done, however. He chose to print the first portion of my comments, omitting the second, and two or three rather flamboyant and, I felt, misleading newspaper stories quoting me appeared in the local paper, which I complained about. And that's the story, Dr. Bell. Much ado about nothing, I'm afraid. I smiled, matching my mood to his. Light pressure, you said, Professor Budlong. These pods might have been propelled through space by the pressure of light? That interests me. Well, he smiled. It interested young Beaky, too. And he had me. I'd given him part of the theory. I had to give him the rest. There's nothing mysterious about it, Doctor. Light is energy, as you know, and any object drifting in space, seed pods or anything else, would indisputably be pushed along by the force of light. Light has a very definite, measurable force. It even has weight. The sunlight lying on an acre of farmland weighs several tons, believe it or not. And if seed pods, for example, out in space lay in the path of light that eventually reaches the Earth, the light from the distant stars or any source at all, they would be propelled toward it by the stream of light steadily beating against them. Be pretty slow, though, wouldn't it? I smiled at him. He nodded infinitely slow, so slow it would hardly be measurable. But what is infinite slowness in infinite time? Once you assume these spores may have drifted in from space, then it is equally true that they may have been out there for millions of years. Hundreds of millions of years, it simply doesn't matter. A corked bottle tossed into the ocean may circle the globe given enough time. Expand the speck that is our globe into the immense distances of space, and it is still true that, given enough time, any of these distances may be crossed. So if these or any spores drifted to Earth, they may well have begun their journey ages before there even was an Earth. He reached forward to tap me on the knee, smiling at Becky. But you aren't a newspaper reporter, Dr. Bennell. The seed pods on the old Parnell farm, if that is what they were, probably drifted there on the wind from not too great a distance and were undoubtedly a completely well-known and classified specimen with which I simply didn't happen to be familiar.
and I'm sure I could have avoided a great deal of kidding from my colleagues at the school if I had simply said so to young Beaky, instead of allowing him to take my theories and make me run with them. He grinned at us again, a very likable guy. I sat thinking about what he said, and after a moment, he said gently, Why are you interested, Dr. Bennell? Well, I hesitated, wondering how much I could or should say to him. Then I said, Have you heard anything, Professor Budlong, about a sort of delusion that's been occurring here in Mill Valley? Yes, a little. He looked at me wonderingly then nodded at a mass of papers on the desk before him. I've been working hard for the past couple of months on what I feel or hope is a fairly important technical paper scheduled for winter publication. It will mean a great deal to me professionally, and I've been more or less out of circulation working on it. But a psychology instructor at school did tell me something about an apparent though temporary delusion of personality change which several local people have had. You think there's some connection between that and, he grinned, our space spores? I glanced at my watch and stood up. In just over three minutes, Jack Belichick was due to drive down this street, and I wanted us out at the tall hedge in front of the house, ready to step into his car. Possibly, I answered Professor Budlong. Tell me this, could these spores conceivably be some sort of weird alien organism with the ability to imitate, in fact duplicate a human body, turn themselves for all practical purposes into a kind of human being indistinguishable from the real thing? The pleasant-faced, youthful-looking man at the desk before me looked at me curiously, studying my face for a moment. Then when he spoke, after apparently considering my question, his tone was carefully polite. He was treating an utterly absurd question for the sake of good manners, with a seriousness it did not deserve. I'm afraid not, Dr. Bennell. There aren't many things, he smiled at me, that you can assert with absolute positiveness, but one of them is this. No substance in the universe could possibly reconstitute itself into the amazing structure of living bone, blood, and infinitely complex cellular organization that is a human being or any other living animal. It's impossible, absurd, I'm afraid. Whatever you feel you may have observed, doctor, you're on the wrong tack. I know myself how easy it is at times to be carried away by a theory, but you're a doctor, and when you think about it, you'll know I'm right. I did know. I felt my face flush in complete confusion, unable to think, and I stood there feeling I'd made the most ridiculous kind of fool of myself and that of all people I, a doctor, should have had more sense, and I wanted to drop through the floor or disappear in thin air. Quickly, almost abruptly, I thanked Budlong, shaking his hand. All I wanted was to get away from this intelligent, pleasant-eyed man whose face was so carefully refraining from showing the contempt he must have felt. A few moments later, he was politely showing us out the front door, and as we walked down the steps toward the wooden gate in the high shrub along the front edge of the lawn, I was grateful to hear the door close behind us. I wasn't thinking. I was mentally still back in the study, feeling like a child who's disgraced himself. And I actually had my hand on the gate latch, fumbling with the mechanism. Then I stopped. A few hundred yards off to our right, I heard a car moving very fast, 
swing around the corner and onto the street, the rubber squealing on the pavement as though it would never stop. An instant later, through the latticework of the gate, I saw Jack Belichick's car flash past. Jack, hunched over the wheel, eyes straight ahead. Theodora crouched beside him, the motor roaring. Another set of tires squealed around the corner to the right, out of sight over the high hedge. Then, a split second later, a shot sounded, the sharp, unmistakable crack of a gun. And we actually heard the faint high whistle of the bullet ripping the air of the street before us. A black-and-white gold-starred Mill Valley police car shot past our gate. And then, in an incredibly few moments, the twin sounds of racing motors had diminished, faded, sounded once again very faintly, then they were gone. Behind us, the front door opened, and now I unlatched the gate, and holding Becky's elbow tightly, I walked with her quickly, but not running, along the sidewalk and down two houses. We turned then into a walk leading to a two-storied white clapboard house I'd played in as a boy. We walked along the side and through the backyard. Behind us on the street we just left, I heard a voice call out, another voice answer, then the slam of a door. A moment later we were again climbing the hill that rose behind the row of houses, and then, once more, we were hurrying along a path, threading through underbrush, occasional eucalyptus and oak trees, and second-growth saplings. I'd had time to think. I knew what had happened and I was astounded at the kind of nerve and clear-headed intelligence and thoughtfulness Jack Belichick had shown. There was no telling how long he'd been chased, though it couldn't have been long. But I knew he must have driven through Mill Valley streets, a police car behind him and shooting, with one eye on his watch, deliberately passing up whatever chances he'd had to escape, to drive out of this town and into the world and safety beyond it. Jack had driven so as to lead the chase closer and closer to the street and home he knew we'd be waiting at until the minute hand of his watch told him we'd see just what we had seen. It was the only way he could warn us. And incredibly, he'd done so, at a time when horror and panic must have been fighting for his mind. And all I could do for him now was hope that somehow he and his wife would escape. And I was certain they could not, that the nearly impassable roads he could drive out on would be blocked now, other police cars waiting and ready for them. And now I knew what a terrible mistake we had made coming back to Mill Valley, how helpless we were against whatever was ruling this town. And I wondered how long it would be at the next step, the next bend of the path, perhaps, before we were caught. And what would happen to us then? Fear. A stimulant at first, the adrenaline pumping into the bloodstream, is finally exhausting. Becky was clinging to my arm, unaware of how much of her weight she was making me carry. And her face was bloodless her eyes half-closed, her lips parted, and she was sucking in air through her mouth. We couldn't continue to roam and climb these hills much longer. My leg movements, I noted, were no longer automatic. The muscles were responding now only through an effort of will. Somewhere we had to find sanctuary, and there was none. Not a home at which we dared to appear, not a face, even that of a lifelong friend, to which we dared risk appealing for help. Chapter 15 Our main street curves and winds along the foot of a miniature range of hills, as do a great many of the town's streets. 
We were climbing, presently down the side of one of these hills, winding along a footpath which would end at the little alley at the back of a block of business buildings, including the building in which I had my office. It was the best I could think of, all I could think of. I was afraid to go there, but more afraid not to. And in a curious way, I thought it was perfectly possible that we might be safe there, for a time anyway. Because it wasn't a place we could be expected to go to, not until time had passed and we weren't found anywhere else. And right now we simply had to have an hour of rest at least. We might even sleep, I thought, leading Becky down the hill, though I didn't really think we could. But I had Benzedrine in the office and a few other drugs, stimulants that, after an hour's rest to think of some sort of plan, might give us the strength to carry it out. Below us, now I could see over the roofs of the buildings we were approaching, the business street I'd known as long as I could remember, the Sequoia, where I'd watched so many Saturday afternoon movies as a kid, Bennett's Variety Store, where I'd bought candy for the show, and where I'd had a job one high school summer vacation, and the three-room apartment over one group of stores, where I'd been half a dozen times one summer my first year in college, calling on a girl who lived there alone. We reached the alley, and there was no one in it, only a dog sniffing at a refuse-filled carton. We crossed it and walked into the two-story office building through the open sheet-steel door that led into the white-painted concrete block back stairwell. I was ready to try and take with us anyone, man or woman, we might have met on those stairs. But we met no one. On the second floor, my ear at the closed metal fire door, I listened. No sound. And I pulled the door open. We walked silently along the empty hallway to the opaque glass door that bore my name. I had my key out and ready, and then we were inside my office, the door clicking shut behind us. My waiting room and office were already dusty, I saw as I wandered through it, looking the place over, a fine film of dust over every glass and wood surface. My nurse, I knew, wouldn't have been near the place since I'd been here last and now it smelled unused and closed in, and was dark, every Venetian blind closed tight. It was quiet and dead and no longer friendly, as though I'd been away too long and it weren't really mine anymore. The place looked untouched, and I didn't bother trying to see if anyone had been here, searching through it for some reason. Right now I just couldn't care. There's a long, wide Chesterfield in the waiting room, and I put Becky on it, her shoes off. I got a couple of sheets and the pillow from the examining table and tucked her in carefully. She lay watching me, not saying anything, and when our eyes met, she smiled wanly and thanks. Crouching beside her, I took her face in my hands and kissed her, a gesture of comfort, like kissing a child, no sex in it. She was worn out at the end of her rope. I passed my hand slowly over her forehead, stroking it. Sleep, I said. Get some rest. I smiled and winked at her, looking, I hoped, calm and confident, as though I knew what I was doing and was going to do. My shoes off, so no one passing by in the hall outside could hear me, I untied the leather pad from my examining table, took it out to the waiting room to the row of windows overlooking Throckmorton Street, and laid it on the floor paralleling the windows. Then I unbuttoned my coat, loosened my tie, and sat down. 
my back against the side wall, I slowly tilted one slat of the Venetian blind just enough to peer down at Throckmorton, and now I felt better. Enclosed in these dark, silent rooms, I'd felt blind and helpless, but now, looking down on the street below, watching the activity on it, I felt more in control of things. The scene I saw through the quarter-inch slit was ordinary enough at first glance, Drive along the main street of any of a hundred thousand American small towns, and you'll be seeing what I did. There were parked cars on an asphalt street, sidewalks and parking meters, white-ruled parking spaces, and people walking in and out of Red Hill Liquors, the drugstore, Varney's Hardware, and a dozen others. There was a little fog, no more than a mist, moving in from the bay. Throckmorton jogs at the corner just past my windows, and a side street joins it at that corner. So the paved street area is more than usually wide there, and because of the jog in the street, the wide area of pavement is almost completely enclosed on three sides by stores, the nearest thing to a sort of town square we've got. They occasionally set up a bandstand here for street dances or carnivals. I lay watching changing position now and then, occasionally lying on my side, propped on an elbow, my eyes just over the window sill. Once I lay on my back, staring up at the ceiling. I've long since learned that thinking is mostly an unconscious process, that it's usually best not to force it, particularly when the problem itself is vague in your mind and you don't really know what sort of answer you're hunting for. So I rested, tired but not sleepy watching the street, waiting for something to happen inside my mind. There's fascination about monotony in motion, the steady flicker of a fire, an endless series of waves slowly crashing on a beach, the unvarying movement of a piece of machinery, and I stare down at the street for minute after minute, watching the shifting patterns that over and over, almost but never quite, repeated themselves. Women walking into the market, and women coming out, arms around brown paper sacks, clutching at purses or children, or both. Cars moving out of the parking spaces, others slipping into the white-ruled slots. A mailman moving into and out of one store after another. An old man plodding along three young boys horsing around. It all looked so ordinary. There were red and white paper signs pasted on the windows of the market advertising niblets, round steak, bananas, and laundry soap. Varney's hardware store had one window filled with kitchen equipment, pots, pans, electric mixers, irons, and in the other window, power tools. The dime store windows were loaded with model airplanes and paper cutout dolls, and staring at the red and gold front, I could almost smell that dime store fragrance. Stretching across the street near the Sequoia Theater hung a rather faded banner, red with white letters, Mill Valley Bargain Jubilee, it read an annual sale of the merchants. This year, though, it looked as though they hadn't bothered painting a new banner. Almost directly ahead across the street, a little to the right, I saw the bus from Marin City pull in. Only three people got out, a man and a woman together, and a man with a brown paper parcel he carried by the string. There was no one waiting to get on the bus, and after a minute or so it pulled out of the beige and tan depot into Miller Avenue. 
heading for the distant freeway, and for some reason it occurred to me, I knew the bus schedule, that there wouldn't be another bus entering or leaving town for the next fifty-one minutes, and that things had changed on the street below me. It isn't easy to say just how they had changed. The fog was heavier, touching the higher rooftops now, thick and gray, but that was normal. That wasn't the change. There were more people on the street, but this was the change. They weren't quite acting like a normal Saturday afternoon shopper's crowd. Some were still moving in and out of stores, but quite a few of them were just sitting in their cars, some with a door open, feet hooked on the side, talking to the people in the next car, others reading newspapers or fiddling with car radios, just killing time. I recognized a great many of the faces, Len Perlman, the optometrist, Jim Clark, and his wife, Shirley, and their kids, and so on. At this moment, though, Throckmorton Street of Mill Valley, California, could still have seemed like an ordinary, though rather shabby, shopping street on an ordinary Saturday. It's what a stranger would have thought driving through town. But looking down at it now, I knew, or at least sensed, that there was more to it than that. There was an atmosphere of something about to happen, a quiet waiting for something expected. It was, I tried to put it into words sitting there watching through the slit in the blind, like people slowly gathering for a parade, but that wasn't quite it either. Possibly it was more like a group of soldiers leisurely assembling for some routine formation, some of them talking, smiling, or laughing with others, some reading quietly, others just sitting or standing off by themselves waiting. I guess the atmosphere down on that street was simply expectation without any special excitement about it. Then, Bill Bittner, a local contractor, a stout middle-aged man in his fifties, strolling along the sidewalk, glancing at store windows, casually pulled a button out of his pocket. It was a plastic or metal button I could see with printing on it. He pinned it on his coat lapel, and now I saw that it was about the size of a silver dollar, and I recognized the design and knew what the printing said. It said, Mill Valley Bargain Jubilee. The local merchants all wore them each year and passed them out to those customers who were willing to wear them. Only all those I'd seen before had been red with white printing. Bill Bittner's button was yellow printed on navy blue. And now, here and there, all up and down the street, as far as I could see, other people were pulling out these yellow and blue buttons and pinning them to their coats. Not everyone did it at once. Most of them just kept on talking or walking along or sitting in their cars or whatever they were doing, and within any half minute, all that a stranger walking along that street would have seen, if he'd even noticed at all, would have been two or three people pinning those buttons to the lapels of their coats. And yet, within five or six minutes, perhaps, at one time or another, nearly everyone down there, even Jansik, the parking meter cop, had brought out a blue and yellow Mill Valley Bargain Jubilee button and pinned it on in plain sight. Some of them even removed red and white, otherwise identical, buttons first. 
It took a minute or so, too, to realize this. A gradual movement of people had been going on from both directions on Throckmorton Street to the semi-public square below my window. Strolling pedestrians, glancing in windows as they moved, were gradually approaching it. Here and there, people got casually from their cars, slammed the doors, then stretched, perhaps, or gazed around or glanced at a window display, then wandered on down toward the square. Even now, though, a stranger on Throckmorton would probably have seen nothing out of the way. Mill Valley was holding a bargain sale, apparently, and most of the townspeople were wearing jubilee buttons. At the moment, a considerable number of the shoppers on Throckmorton happened to be crowded into one short block, and yet all in all, there was nothing out and out strange or remarkable to see. Becky was kneeling on the floor beside me, I realized, and now I smiled and stood up to swing the pad on the floor around so we both could sit on it. I put an arm around her then, and she huddled close, her cheek next to mine as we both stared down through the Venetian blind. From the dime store, a salesman walked out to his car. It was lettered on the door with the name of his company. Opening the door, he began hunting for something, uh, apparently on the floor of the car. Jansik, the cop, glancing at his watch, strolled over, then stopped to stand on the walk beside the front of the car. The salesman straightened, slammed the door of his car, and a sheaf of leaflets in his hand turned toward the store he'd come out of. Jansik spoke to him. The salesman stepped onto the walk, and they stood there talking. It occurred to me, staring down at them, the salesman facing in our direction now, that he was one of the few people on the street, if there were any others, who was not wearing a blue and yellow jubilee button. He was frowning now, looking bewildered, and Jansik was slowly and firmly shaking his head at whatever the salesman was saying. Then the salesman shrugged irritably, walked around to the driver's side of his car, pulling his keys from his pocket, and Jansik opened the other door and slid into the right-hand front seat. The car backed out, drove ahead a dozen yards, then swung slowly left into the side street, and I knew they were headed for the police station. What Jansik could be arresting him for, I couldn't guess. A blue Volvo sedan, the only car now moving in the street, drove slowly along in low gear looking for a space to park. The driver spotted one then and began to nose in. The car had Oregon license plates. A cop's whistle sounded, and Beecham, the local police sergeant, was trotting down the sidewalk, his paunch jiggling, waving a hand at the car and shaking his head no. The organ car stopped where it was, and the driver sat waiting till Beecham came up, the woman beside him leaning forward to peer through the windshield. Beecham stooped at the driver's window. They talked for a few moments. Then Beecham got into the back seat, and the car back, then pulled ahead, turned left into the side street toward the police station, and disappeared from sight. There were three more cops in sight in the nearly two blocks I could see, old Hayes and two others, younger men I didn't know. Hayes wore a uniform, but the younger men wore uniform caps only, leather jackets and dark, nondescript pants. They looked like special cops, hired and deputized for a single occasion. Alice, the waitress at Dave's, came out and stood on the sidewalk before the door, the blue and yellow jubilee button pinned to her white uniform. 
One of the younger cops spotted her immediately, and Alice looked at him, nodded her head once, then turned and walked back into the restaurant. The cop came along, then turned into the restaurant. Maybe a minute later, he came out again, and three people, a man, a woman, and an eight- or nine-year-old girl, obviously a family, were with him. For a moment or so, the group stood on the walk, the man talking, protesting about something, the young cop answering politely and patiently. Then the group walked away toward the side street on which the station house stood, and I watched till they turned the corner and disappeared. None of the family had been wearing a jubilee button, but the young cop was. One other man. A delivery truck driver got the same treatment, and when he and the cop with him had turned out of sight, there wasn't a soul I could see who wasn't wearing a yellow and blue jubilee button. And now the street was quiet, almost completely silent, not a car moving or person walking. No one read a paper or sat in his car anymore. Everyone stood on the sidewalks, three or four deep, facing the street except Hayes, the old cop, who stood alone in the middle of the wide street. In front of each store or business establishment stood the proprietor, his clerks and employees and whatever customers had been in the place. Old Hayes, out in the street, slowly turned his head, glancing in turn at each of the proprietors, and each time the proprietor shook his head, no. The two other cops then came up to Hayes and reported apparently, and Hayes listened and nodded. Then the roll call over. Hayes and the other two cops walked to the sidewalk, turned to face the street, and stood waiting in the crowd. In two places, looking over rooftops, I could see streets as far as half a mile away. Not a car or anything else moved on any of them and on one distant street I could see a barricade across the road, the gray-painted wooden horses of the street department. I realized suddenly I knew that all over town every street was blocked off like this by crews of men in overhauls ostensibly repairing the street. I knew that right now you couldn't get into Mill Valley any way at all or move along its streets towards the business district. And I knew that the handful of strangers who had happened to be here had been gathered up and were being held at the police station under just what pretext it did not matter. Mill Valley was cut off from the world right now, and there was absolutely no one in sight of the center of town who wasn't a resident. For as long as three or four minutes then, as strange a sight as I have ever seen, that crowd lined both sidewalks, the street empty, like people watching an invisible parade. They stood almost motionless and silent. Even the children were quiet. Here and there a few men were smoking, but most of the crowd just stood. Some of the men with arms folded on their chests, comfortable and relaxed, people occasionally shifting weight from one foot to the other, Children stood holding to their parents' coats. I heard the motor of a car. Then the hood came into sight around the bend of the street near the Sequoia, a dark green battered old Chevrolet pickup. Behind it came four other trucks, three of them big GM farm trucks with slatted portable sides, the other another pickup. They drove into the little public square and parked at the curb all lined up together. 
Each of them carried a load covered by canvas tarpaulins, and the drivers setting their brakes swung out of the cabs of their trucks one by one and began untying the tarps. The scene now looked like an open-air market. The produce just arrived from the country. All of the drivers wore overalls of denim pants and shirts, and I knew four of the five. They were all from the few remaining small farms west of town. Joe Grimaldi, Joe Pixley, Art Gessner, Bert Parnell, and one other. Two men in business suits had stepped into the street near the line of trucks, Wally Eberhard, a local real estate man, and another man whose name I couldn't recall though I remembered he was a mechanic at the Buick garage. Wally had some sheets of paper in his hand, small sheets that looked as though they'd come from a notebook, and the two men stood glancing through them, Wally shuffling them in his hands. Then the mechanic looked up, drew a deep breath, and in a loud voice, almost a shout, we could hear him plainly through our window, called out, Sausalito! If you have Sausalito families, step out, please! Sausalito is a Marin County town, the first you come to in the county after crossing the bay. Two people, a man and a woman, not together, had stepped from the curb into the street and were walking toward Wally. Several others were pushing their way through the crowd. Then they stepped into the street and walked toward the trucks. Joe Pixley had the tarp on his pickup untied now, and he walked to the back of the truck, took the bottom edge of the tarp, then heaved it up, folding it back onto the truck off the load. I'd long since known what was in those trucks. I felt not even the beginning of surprise when the tarp came off. Lining the metal sides of the pickup body were thin boards prolonging the height of the sides and keeping the tarp off the load that was piled cab-high in the truck. It was filled with the huge seed pods I'd seen now so often before. All right, the mechanic yelled, Sausalito, Sausalito only, please! and he motioned the five or six people standing in the street toward Joe Pixley's truck. Standing on the running board, Joe lifted the top pods of his load one by one, handing them down into the waiting arms of the people clustered below him. Each man and woman took a single pod, carrying it away carefully in his outstretched arms. One man took two. Beside them, Wally Eberhard made a check mark on what was apparently a list in his hand, as each pod was handed down. Then he spoke to the mechanic, who called out, Marin City, please! All with Marin City families or contacts next! Marin City is the next Marin County town a few miles in from Sausalito. Seven people came forward, five of them black. Marin City has a large black population, edging through the crowd, then stepping into the street, and as they came forward and stopped at his truck, Joe handed down a pod to each. One person, Grace Burke, a middle-aged black woman who worked at the bank, took three, and a man stepped down from the curb to help her carry them without crushing them. I remembered that Grace Burke had a sister and brother-in-law living in Marin City. Whether there were more in the family, I didn't know. The trunk doors of parked cars were being unlocked now and heaved open. 
The great pods just fitted into the empty trunks of some of the newer model cars. Other pods were being carefully eased through the open doors of several cars, then set gently down on the back seats. In each case, then, the man or woman kneeling on the front seat would place a sheet or some kind of light cloth over the great pod, concealing it from view. Tiburon was called out next, and eight people came forward for pods, and then Joe Pixley's truck was empty. He sat down on the running board, lighting a cigarette to wait. The other trucks were uncovered, the drivers standing ready to unload them. The garage mechanic in the neat gray suit called Belvedere, and two people stepped out into the street. Corda Madera, Strawberry, Belverin Gardens, and San Rafael were next. Fourteen people accepted pods for San San Rafael, the largest town of the county. Then every other town in the county was called out, until presently, in no more than fifteen minutes, perhaps all five trucks were empty, except Joe Grimaldi's, which had two left over. In less than a minute, then, Wally and the mechanic had stepped into the crowd again, Wally shoving his papers into his inside breast pocket. The crowd itself was shifting and breaking up. The little cavalcade of trucks, starters whirring, motors catching, had backed out into the street, then disappeared down Throckmorton, and all up and down the nearly two blocks we could see, cars with giant pods in their trunks or concealed in the rear were pulling out of the parking spaces, then driving away. For a brief time, the crowd, moving along the walks, crossing the street, getting into cars, children darting into and out of it, was heavier than normal, like the sudden glut of people pouring out of a movie after the last show. But it quickly thinned, and I saw women again trundling wire shopping carts inside the market, people sitting down at the counter of Dave's Diner, others sauntering into or out of the various stores, Cars moved slowly along the streets once more. The scene was normal again. A more or less typical Main Street, perhaps rather more run down than is usual, but not enough so to arouse wonder in a passing stranger. Not a person in the street wore a yellow and blue jubilee button anymore. The one or two wore the red and white kind the merchants had passed out. Perhaps five minutes later, I saw the salesman Jansik had arrested driving down Throckmorton, alone in his car, and a few moments after that, the car with the Oregon license plates. My arm still around her, I turned to look at Becky, and she stared at me for a moment, then pursed her lips and shrugged, and I smiled a little in response. There was nothing more to do or say, and I wasn't aware of any particular emotion. Certainly there was no new one, and I felt none of the old ones any more strongly. We'd simply reached a limit beyond which there was nothing more to be said or felt. But I was finally aware, now I knew it for sure, that the entire town of Mill Valley was taken, that not a soul in it but ourselves and possibly the Belichicks was what he had been or what he seemed still to the naked eye. The men, women, and children in the street and stores below me were something else now, every last one of them. They were each our enemies, including those with the eyes, faces, gestures, and walks of old friends. There was no help for us here, except from each other, 
And even now, the communities around us were being invaded. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.